This morning we consider the words of Matthew 15, as well as a few words from Psalm 86 in connection with Lord's Day 44 of our catechism and God's will for us in the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment, of course, is that commandment which gets the very heart of the matter, that is, our obedience before God in this life. As we know that God is not only after our hands, but God is also after our hearts. And therein lies the problem. That's what Jesus shows us here in Matthew 15. We begin reading at verse 1. This is God's holy word. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, And why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know what the Pharisees were offended with when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman from Canaan came from the region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus departed from there and skirted to the Sea of Galilee and went on the way to the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Let's turn also to Psalm 
86. Psalm 86, page 679 in the Pew Bibles. A prayer of David. We'll read just verses 11 through 13. Here the Spirit of Christ teaches us to pray. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Indeed, congregation of the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Turn also in our Forms and Prayers books to Lord's Day 44 of the Catechism, page 250 in the back of the Forms and Prayers books. We read Lord's Day 44. Question 113, what is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? Not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. Question 114. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all not only some of God's commandments. Finally, question 115. Since no, one can, since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long, we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. This the Church of Christ does confess and believe throughout the world. <clears throat> Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, in one of his more recently published books, Craig Troxell notes how everyone intuitively seems to know what we're talking about when we use the word heart. If, for example, someone comes to us and says, you know, I really had a, a change of heart, we know that what, they mean, what, that what they mean by that is that they now think differently about someone or something than they did before. Or if someone comes to us and says, you know, I really took what you said to heart, well, then we know that they listened well, that something we said perhaps caused them to, to change course in some way. Or think of when the, the teacher asks her students to know their Bible memory work by heart. We know that what she means by that is not only that they should be able to, to rattle off those words at the appointed hour, but rather that they should remember those words well, that they should be able to, to say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Lord, I have, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If someone is very important to you, you might say that you hold him or her dear to your heart. Think of how the, the Apostle Paul, for example, pleads with that church in Corinth, saying, we have spoken freely to you, dear Corinthians. We have opened wide our hearts to you. And now we speak as to children. Open wide your hearts also to us. This is the way we speak when we fall in love with someone. 
If you say something like, she gave me her heart, well, then she's in love with you. But if you say, she broke my heart, well, then she no longer is. Everyone seems to know what we mean when we use the word heart, despite how versatile its meaning can often be. Well, according to the Bible, no word is so important when it comes to describing your inner self than the word heart. In fact, appearing just under a thousand times, no word is used more often to describe something about the inner self than the word heart, which tells us that there's something quite significant about the heart. Whether that be the, the thoughts of the heart, how we think, or, or the affections of the heart, what we love, or, or the will of our heart, what we choose, there's something very significant about the heart. And as we seek to unpack God's will for us in the 10th commandment, we're reminded, aren't we, that God knows all about our hearts. We're reminded that God knows our hearts even better than we do. He knows what it is that we love. He knows what we long for. He knows what we desire. He knows where our treasure is. As David prays at the start of Psalm 139, Lord, you have searched me and known me. He is confessing that God knows his heart. And he confesses the same thing at the end of that prayer when he prays, Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any grievous way in me and, and lead me in the way everlasting. God searches our hearts. And of course, on the one hand, that's a rather fearful thing, isn't it? It can be a fearful thing to, to consider the fact that the same God who comes to us and says, You shall not covet. And the same God who comes to us and says that not even the slightest desire should ever arise in your hearts against any one of my commandments, that that is the same God who, who can peer into our hearts and see how exactly it is that we're doing in that regard. For in a world that says we should never deny ourselves our heart's desires, and a world that says just, just follow your heart, God says in Jeremiah 17, that the heart of man is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then he says, I, the Lord, understand. I search the heart and test the mind and give each man according to the deeds that he has done. And so the Tenth Commandment, on the one hand, brings us to our knees or it, or it cuts us at the knees. So if any of us ever read Commandments 1 through 9 and say, you know what, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I haven't slept with another man's wife. I haven't stolen. I haven't lied. I haven't murdered anyone. Well, then the 10th commandment comes along and says, oh yeah, and, and what about your heart? Matthew Henry says of this commandment that it strikes at the root. It doesn't just strike at the branches, but it goes deep down into the soil as it were. It gets to the heart and to the desires of our hearts. And it shows us that God doesn't just care about what we do on the outside with our hands, but God also cares, and he cares much more about who we really are on the inside in our hearts. God cares about our affections and our desires, our wants. And so here in the 10th commandment, God says, not only shall you not break commandments 1 through 9, but you should not even think about doing so. You should not even give even the slightest consideration to violating any one of my commandments, but rather our catechism says, with all our hearts, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. God is after our whole heart, 
not just a, a fraction of not just a tiny little corner of it, but God wants all your heart, every nook and cranny, every thought, every desire, every decision must be in perfect harmony with all of God's commandments. And as Jesus reveals to us so clearly here in Matthew 15, this divine command then shows us our immense need of Him. This command shows us how without Him we are really doomed in this regard. So long as we are outside of Christ, as long as we have not the, the new heart that only He can give, then we cannot do any of the things that, that Lord's Day 44 is talking about here. But with Him, in Him, and through Him, this Savior not only redeems us by His blood, but also renews us by His Spirit. Lord's Day 32, with Him, in Him, and through Him, we can receive a new heart that although far from making us perfect, does make us penitent and does enable us to begin living the life that Lord's Day 44 is describing, a life of, of delighting in all righteousness, a life of, of pursuing God's will in everything we do and say. And so in the remaining time we have together this morning, I'd like for us to consider the desires of our hearts. Considering in the first place the sins of our heart's desires, and then secondly, the Savior of our heart's desires. And then finally, the service or the sanctification of our heart's desires. Well, in Matthew 15, we're confronted with the problem, aren't we? It's not a new problem we discover, but it's an old problem that goes a long way back. It's a problem that you can say runs in, in the genetic makeup and the spiritual DNA of fallen humanity. And that includes even the people of Israel. For over the years, as Israel grew impatient in their waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, we discovered that their theology began to change, and that it began to change for the worse. Somewhere down the road, their theology took an ugly turn away from God's concern for the heart to a gross misunderstanding that God's favor could be gained merely by, by the works of our hands. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were, with, who, who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. As we know, boys and girls, the Pharisees were those religious leaders who made so many new laws that they forgot the very things which lay at the very heart of God's laws. And the process of inventing all these new laws, they added so many caveats to God's laws that they totally missed the point of them altogether. And that's what Jesus highlights so poignantly in verses 3 through 6. As he challenges the Pharisees who, who refuse to honor their father and mother under the false pretense of giving gifts to God. They have forgotten what Hosea said, that, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. This is where we see how old this problem really is. Because what does Jesus go on to say and do in verses 7 and following? He, he reapplies the words which the prophet Isaiah had spoken so many years prior. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This was the problem. They were seeking to honor God with their lips, and all along their hearts were far from Him. And we, of course, understand that by nature this is our problem as well. 
this that we heard in the, in the form for baptism. We're, we're born this way with, with hearts that are, that are prone to, to leave the God we love. In man's pride, he thinks that he can give to God the scraps of the works of his hands all while keeping his heart and, and the desires of his heart all to himself. And so Jesus goes on to drive the point home in verses 19 and following when he says, for out of the heart, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, and so on. And these are the things that, that defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, this is not defile anybody. Jesus gets to the very heart of the matter. And he explains that our hearts are our biggest problem. When we fell into sin, our hearts went went haywire. They became wildly confused, out of control and covetous. They began to, to want and desire all the things that God said we shouldn't want to want or desire. This is what was going on in the heart of the woman in Genesis 3, verse 6, when, when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, that she took of its fruit and ate, and gave some also to her husband, and he ate. And what misery simple desire brought into their world? What misery simple desire brought into our world? Or, or fast forward the life of King David into his terrible downfall with Bathsheba, where in 2 Samuel 11, almost the exact same words are used. He saw her, and then he desired her, and then he took her. And what misery, simple desire, brought into David's world. His, his bones wasted away. His strength was dried up, Psalm 32. Cost him even the life of his child. And we, of course, recognize that, that gut-wrenching passages like this haven't been recorded, so we can simply, you know, point the finger and say, well, well how could they? Rather, the Spirit gives us passages like this, and he holds them up as a mirror before our eyes, whereby we say, well, how, how could we? So he might say there, but for the grace of God, go I. Because apart from the grace of God, we too desire and treasure and strive after all the wrong things. And that's why those words that we sang at the start of our worship service are so moving. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Those words are only so moving because they're so true. How often don't our hearts lead us astray? And so the last thing we should ever do is simply follow our heart's desires because those desires can, can no longer be trusted. If you've read or seen The Lord of the Rings, what is it about that ring that makes it so alluring and sought after? Well, besides the power that it affords, it also symbolizes the strongest of all desires, the, the greatest of all conquests, namely what a person loves. The ring enables a person to grasp his or her heart's desire. But the ring, says Craig Troxel, symbolizes a love that has gone terribly wrong. 
It's a love that's been perverted by evil men who cherish unquenchable lusts and are consumed by a mad craving for power. What a stark picture of the human heart. The roots of desire run deep within our hearts, and those roots are strong. If you want to know just how deep and strong your desires are, then ask yourself, what would you do if you had such a ring? What would you do if you could do whatever you wanted without any consequence or any restraint? Our hearts reveal us, don't they? And if our hearts were to paint a picture of all our thoughts and looks and wants and desires, how, how pretty would that picture be? I trust that all of us here will readily admit that were it not for the grace of God, then the tapestry of our lives painted by the desires of our hearts would not be a picture we'd want anyone to see. And the Tenth Commandment shows us that. For who among us here can say that not even the slightest desire or thought against any one of God's commandments has never arisen in our hearts? None of us here can say that. The Tenth Commandment brings us to our knees. It convicts us of our sins. But the Tenth Commandment not only convicts us of our sin, but it also compels us to look outside of ourselves and to the divine help of a Savior. This, according to our catechism, is why God would have the law be preached so pointedly, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus all the more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. This is the second thing we consider together this morning, the Savior of our heart's desires. Although the, the thoughts of our hearts have been, have been confused by sin, and although the, the affections and desires of our hearts have been corrupted by sin, and although the will of our heart has been taken captive by sin, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 5? But that where sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. And what we read in 1 John 3 verse 20, but that even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and He knows all things. God knows when our hearts condemn us. He knows when, when Satan highlights that, that guilt within, when we begin to, to wonder in our hearts, is, is God really for me? But He never leaves us nor forsakes us. I said earlier on that on the one hand, those words which King David records in Psalm 139 can be a rather fearful thing to pray, can't they? To, to note the same God who calls for our whole heart is the same God who, who searches and peers into our hearts. But what does the gospel tell us? It's that we need not be afraid to pray those words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. The gospel reminds us that he who knows us best is also he who loves us most. He who knows us best is he who loves us most. And so we don't need to be afraid to, to pray those words, search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any grievous way in me. 
And so when our hearts condemn us, we need to remember that God is greater than our hearts. Ours is the God who who said in Jeremiah 24, I will give them a new heart to know that I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. In Christ, God has fulfilled that promise. For Christ Jesus is the, the Savior of our hearts, desires in Him and through Him. God answers that prayer of the psalmist, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. For He comes to us, He comes to you and me in His threefold office as the Christ to correct all the confused thoughts of our hearts as our chief prophet to purify all the corrupt desires of our hearts, our only high priest, and, and to liberate the captive will of our hearts as our gracious king. For as Hebrews 7 says, he is mighty to save to the uttermost those who, who draw near to him in faith. And isn't that what Matthew illustrates so wonderfully and so powerfully here in Matthew 15? As Jesus goes away from the scribes and Pharisees and withdraws to the district of Tyre and Sidon, he's confronted by a Canaanite woman whose daughter is severely oppressed by demons, and she's, she's crying out to him, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And when Jesus tests the sincerity of her faith, saying, I was not sent only but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, what does this woman do? She, she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And even when Jesus tested her once more, saying, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, she pleads with him once more, saying, yes, Lord, but, but even the dogs eat the, scr- eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then how does Jesus answer her? Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly from that very hour. And we read also in verses 29 and following how the crowds are now coming to Jesus and they're, they're bringing with them those who are lame and blind and mute, and they're, and they're laying him at his feet. And then what do we read at the end of verse 30? We read that he healed them. He healed them so that the crowds marveled and they saw the mute speaking and the maimed whole, the lame walking and the blind singing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And what Matthew is showing us here, impressing upon our hearts, is that this is the very purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus came to, to reverse all those effects of the curse. He came to heal the sick and the lame and the blind and the crippled. So we might know and believe today that if he could heal them, then he can heal us too. Reflecting on the healing ministry of Christ, J.C. Ryle writes, Behold in these words a lively emblem of Christ's power to heal sin-diseased souls. There is no ailment of the human heart which he cannot heal. There is no form of spiritual complaint that he cannot overcome. The fever of lust, the palsy, the love of the world, the heart disease of unbelief, all, all give way when he sends forth his Spirit to any one of the children of man. And through this Spirit, says Ryle, Christ can put a new song in the sinner's mouth. And he can make him speak with love of that gospel which he wants ridiculed and blasphemed. For Christ has not changed. Although he is high and at the right hand of God, he is still the great physician. He still receives sinners. He is still mighty to heal. 
And this Christ does, congregation. He yet heals us. He puts a, a new song into our mouths. As the faithful prophet, he comes to the sick-hearted sinner, and he shines into her heart the, the knowledge of the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. And this he does to expose the, the sinful thoughts of her heart, to make her sing those words that we sang a few moments ago, teach me, O Lord, thy way of truth, and from it I will not depart. That I may steadfastly obey, give me, Lord, an, an understanding heart. Christ comes, the sick-hearted sinner, as the gracious high priest. And by his Spirit, he, he purifies the heart of that young man who feels so dirty because of where his desires led him to go on the internet. And he puts a new song into that young man's mouth. God, be merciful to me. On thy grace I rest my plea. Plenteous in compassion thou. Blot out my transgressions now. Wash me. Make me pure within. Cleanse, O oh, cleanse me of my sin. For Christ is the, the God of Ezekiel 36 who comes to us, who comes to our children, who comes to our our defiled hearts, and says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a, a new spirit within you. Christ comes to the sick-hearted sinner as the merciful and patient king, and by his grace he begins to, to work on the hardened will of that stubborn child who loves to say no to mom and dad, And he makes his home within that child's heart, as we heard in the promise of baptism. The Spirit promises to make his home from that child's heart so that they begin to, to love God and, and to obey mom and dad. So that they too begin to sing with us in your commandments, make me walk, for in your law my joy shall be. Give me a heart that loves your will from discontent and envy free. For Christ is the Savior God who reminds us that His grace has appeared to teach us to say no to all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, Titus 2, 11 and 12. He makes us able to will and to work for God's good pleasure, Philippians 2, 13. You see, boys and girls, Jesus is the Savior of our heart's desires because He gives us new desires. He not only puts new songs into our mouths, but but he writes those songs on our hearts so that more and more we begin to, to love what he loves and, and to hate what he hates, to delight in the things that, that he delights in. And he makes our desires serviceable once again for the glory of God and for the furthering of his kingdom. And that's what we consider finally this afternoon, the service or the sanctification of our heart's desires. Question 114 asks us, but can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? And the answer, of course, is no. No, we can't keep them perfectly. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. But our confession doesn't end there either, does it? But it goes on to highlight that gospel reality of nevertheless, nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. No, we don't reach perfection in this life. 
But God has indeed made a breach into our sinful hearts. And he's made them to be sanctified hearts. And he's done so with with the wonderful promise of Philippians 1 verse 6, that he who, who began a good work in you will do what? He will bring it to completion on the day of Christ's coming. Congregation, let your hearts be swept up in the love that God in Christ has for you. He loved you to the uttermost. He came down from heaven to, to live and to die in your place. And while we may have all kinds of, of regrets in this life, and we do, we, we look back on our lives with so much regret, and we see all the, all the sins we've committed, and we say we don't even know how we did that or why we did that. Christ has no regret. He has no regret in his heart. So I said that, that, that if he had to, to come down and do it all over again, he would do it. For the saints of covenant URC, he would come down and do it all over again. He has no regret in his heart. So how can we who have been redeemed help but love him who first loved us? I know that many of you may look at your life and feel as though you don't love God enough. Certainly I can relate to that too. I don't love God as I ought to. But I do love him. And I'm growing to, to love him more. And so if you're here this morning, you're saying, yes, I, I love God, but I don't love him as I should. That is yet a wonderful testament of God's grace in your life because without his grace, you would never say that. You would never say that, that you love God at all. This is his gracious work in you. And his gracious work in me. This is the promise that he gives to us and to our children to, to work in our hearts, to break down every idol in our hearts, to wash our hearts and be whiter than snow. But this gracious work of sanctification summons us to take heed of the wisdom of Proverbs 4.23 where God says to us, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. In light of God's transforming grace, we need to keep our hearts. We need to wage war against those desires of the flesh that wage war against our souls. This gracious work summons us to, to listen well to the words of 1 John 2 where God says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, God is calling us to forfeit all fleshly desires and to cultivate new and to nurture new godly desires in our hearts. Rather than simply eradicating the desires of our hearts, that's of course what, that's the goal of, of Buddhism, right? To just eradicate all desire, no God doesn't eradicate desire. He gives us new and, and better desires. Let's remind of those familiar words of C.S. Lewis who once wrote, it would seem that God finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Congregation, the 10th commandment calls us not to be so 
easily pleased and enamored with the false satisfactions of the world. But rather through scripture reading and prayer, through Christian worship and fellowship, we are to to nurture godly desires within our hearts and trust that, that God will give the growth. To be sure we recognize that change isn't always seen in a day. Godly desire is sort of like a a plant in that way. You can't make a plant grow, only God can give the growth. But what can you do? You can nurture that plant. You can cultivate the soil. You can give it water. You can place it on the windowsill so it gets the, the sunlight that it needs. And ordinarily, God is going to use those ordinary means to, to give growth to that plant. Our spiritual growth is similar to that. No, it's not like flipping a switch. It's slow. There's often a a struggle that accompanies our sanctification, that putting to death the old man and and putting on the new man. And that's part of the Christian life. And Lord's Day 44 understands that. Lord's Day 44 understands that the, the, the small beginningness that is our sanctification in this life. But as small as a beginning it may be, it is indeed a beginning nevertheless. And while none of us here can yet say that we are who we one day will be, by the grace of God we can say, I'm no longer who I used to be. And that's a start. No, you're not yet perfect. And you're not yet who you one day will be. But at the same time, you're no longer who you used to be. And so with all serious of purpose, you can begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. You can begin to do that as the Spirit of Christ sanctifies your heart more and more to love what He loves and to delight in the things that Christ delights in. For the small beginning of obedience that we experience in this side of glory is still a beginning. And as the prophet Zechariah warns us, despise not the small things if they testify to the transforming power of God's grace, and such is the small beginning in our conversion. It's a, it's a step in the right direction. And that's far better than walking in the wrong direction, is it not? That before when we were in the kingdom of darkness, we were walking the opposite direction we should have been walking in. But then God saved us, and He turned us around. He granted us repentance and faith to walk in the right way. And yes, they're small steps. They're, they're baby steps. And we don't walk on our own. We walk as, as a baby does with, with dad holding baby's arms. But there's still steps in the right direction. And so it is for this reason that God would have his law to be preached so pointedly. Not only so that we may come to know our sin and, and seek forgiveness in Christ the more eagerly, but also so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that, we may, so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we shall reach our final goal, perfection. And we shall reach that goal He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ's coming. For he who called us is faithful, says Paul, and he will surely do it. Amen. Let us pray.
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again in the morning hour of this day and we give you thanks that where sin increased, your grace abounded all the more. And we give you thanks that when our hearts condemn us, you are greater than our hearts and you reveal yourself to us as the God who knows us best and loves us most. Father, we pray that you would continue to renew us by your Spirit more and more so that we would begin more and more to love what Christ loves and delight in the things that Christ delights in. That you would bring to pass that baptismal promise that you would continue to make your home within us. We would live as children of God and not as children of the world. Soften our hearts day by day, Lord. Cause us evermore to look to Christ, our chief prophet, our high priest, and our gracious king. May we all look to him who is mighty to save. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.